This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. In today's show, I speak to Natasha Hussein, presenter, senior producer, journalist and sub-editor at TRT World, a 24-hour English-language Turkish public broadcaster, as she shares with us the situation on the ground and how the Turkish press and media are covering the devastating earthquake that took place in eastern Turkey. Good morning, Natasha. You know, one would expect the earthquake to dominate news coverage, but how has the coverage evolved over the past few weeks? That's a very interesting question. I think that the coverage really just, as soon as those alerts came in that the quake happened, it was clear that it was a very, very massive disaster. And so it was interesting to see media here. For example, where I work, I work at TRT World. That's an international arm of Terete. In Turkish, it's Terete, but in English, it's TRT, of the state broadcaster here. And we pretty much immediately went into rolling news coverage and have been on rolling news coverage until now. And that's been the case for all mainstream media news outlets here. Rolling news coverage since the earthquake happened, we've sent all the best news anchors and reporters to the quake hit region. Everyone's on duty 24-7. We're really going above and beyond in terms of our coverage. And uh, it's interesting, like we've just come off seven days of mourning here, but once that seven days of mourning was announced in the aftermath of those quakes, what all Turkish TV channels actually did here was change all their news straps, you know, the lower thirds to black. So all branding, everything was in black on these channels and everyone was wearing black on TV, obviously, in solidarity with the quake survivors and victims. But it is really interesting seeing how the news has evolved in the past two weeks. Obviously, that first week we were seeing more rescues and uh, stories on the rescuers themselves, footage and um, sound bites on the radio of rescuers as rescues as they were happening. But obviously, as we sort of nearing the tail end of week two, it's come to that grim realization that we're really reaching the point where this is not really a rescue operation anymore. Although we are seeing some rescues here and there, but far fewer than before, it's becoming a recovery effort. And the focus now is like on survivors and, hey, how are we going to take care of these survivors, these tens of millions of people who now are homeless? Was it easy for reporters to get access to disaster zones? So I just like to emphasize that, for example, I woke up for my shift on Monday morning. So the earthquake happened early very early on Monday morning, I believe it was around four o'clock in the morning. That's the first one that hit. And when that happened, I remember waking up for my shift and I wake up around 7 a.m. in the morning and I and I saw the notification. You know, you open up your phone, you look at all your notifications. I saw my notification. I saw 7.7 magnitude earthquake strikes Turkey southeast. And I was like, oh, my God, this is this is huge. You know, like you look at the number, you already know it's huge. So going into the office, we were already, okay, what, what's going to happen today? But I remember at the time coming into the office and looking at our coverage and realizing that all our coros and guests that were that we were going live to, no one was actually there. And that was a bit confusing to me because I was like, why is there no one there? Mm. But I'd like to emphasize that at that point in time, Istanbul, where I'm living, where, where my company is based, and also Ankara were being pummeled by this 
insane winter snowstorm. Mm. So at that point, hundreds of flights have been canceled in the lead up to that day already from the main international airports out of Istanbul and Ankara because of this crazy biting uh, winter snowstorm. So as soon as the quake struck, we were like, how are we going to get our reporters there on the ground because of this winter snowstorm where flights have been canceled? Emergency flights that were going out, obviously, we're bringing people who were the most important, like doctors, uh, disaster management officials, paramedics, firemen, people who could handle heavy machinery, things like that. So reporters, obviously, you're not a priority to be on these emergency flights. And on top of that, Road access was severely cut off because of damage from the quakes. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the visuals of the extent of the damage. This was a strike slip fault quake. And you could really see that road access to these impacted areas was really difficult. So at that time, I remember we were like, okay, we're trying to get this reporter there. And there, a lot of our reporters were going by road at the time from Istanbul. And it was there. I remember the conversations were like, this journey would normally take 15 hours by road, but because of the severe winter conditions, because of the snowstorm, because of the road damage, this could take 24 hours. So it was actually a bit of time for local and international media to get their reporters on the ground there. But it was interesting because we really had to make do with what we could have reporters. Okay, we have, you know, Axel, for example, now he's in a town that's near there, you know, on on the journey going there. And then we had reporters giving and seismologists and things like that, giving updates from where we were here. So there really was problems getting people there in the beginning, which has obviously improved as the winter, as the weather has eased and road links have been some major road links leading in have been fixed. And it must have been super hard to verify information, especially in the early stages of the earthquake, because figures, data, what was happening in respective zones or areas must have been super challenging, isn't it, for reporters to sift through what was credible, what was spurious in nature. How did you try and fact check and, and do that, especially for a station like yourself, which is you know considered extremely trusted by the public? At the time, what was actually quite good is that, you know, Turkey is prone to natural disasters of this magnitude. Uh, There are several big fault lines that go through either side of the country. So in terms of mobilization after this happened, the authorities here were very quick to jump out and be like, okay, this is what ha- what's happening. These are the latest figures. Our, our people are trying to get there, uh, things like that. And then I think they were updating pretty much every other hour or so on, okay, so these are the latest figures on buildings that have collapsed. So even before they started reporting on the death toll, they were like, okay, Afad, that's the disaster and emergency management authority here would come in and be like, okay, so we're announcing now that, you know, 3,000, we've put the number of buildings collapsed in the city at 3,000. That road links have been severed in the city, the Hatay airport, which is another city in the impacted area, that's completely destroyed the runway. So you were getting updates like this from the government at the time. The the official figures were being disseminated in a timely manner, I feel. I guess now the coverage has shifted a lot and people are beginning to look at the pace and speed of the recovery. Presumably, there was also a bit of frustration, and we are seeing it in international media at how the government was relatively slow in responding to to the disaster. You're also hearing a lot of negative stories about looting in specific areas and towns. You're also hearing that, you know, it's a conflict zone. So access to eight areas 
were generally restricted. Of course, some things have improved a lot, and I'm sure the government has ramped up. Was there a willingness and openness within, uh, you know, the Turkish media to kind of openly criticize, to highlight the gaps and challenges in providing the rescue and recovery? Yes, there has been criticism within local media on the recovery, the search, the rescue efforts in the beginning with certain media outlets pointing out that the government could have mobilized faster. But I'd just like to emphasize that the sheer scale of the disaster is something that is very hard to fathom for some people, because, again, Turkey is a massive country. If you look at that map, like the amount of area that was actually impacted, you're seeing impacted. It was absolutely massive. It's the size of certain countries. It's 10 provinces, tens of millions of people impacted. Some In some areas, you see one building standing in an entire neighborhood. So I feel like in the aftermath of a disaster of this magnitude, there is always criticism towards the government, towards the leaders, towards the municipal authorities. That's only natural. So we have seen that sort of criticism reflected in the media here. But what I feel like is largely being reflected more is the rescue efforts and the search efforts and the plight of the survivors. Because once again, this is a country in mourning. Now, seven days of mourning may be over, but the country is in a state of emergency for a specific amount of time after this uh, tragedy. And Turks... You know, everybody I talk to, this tragedy has really impacted everybody, uh, all these Turks that I speak to in one way or another, whether they have relatives in the area or they have a friend who's lost someone in the area. So the focus right now, and I think it's because it's so recent, it's so raw. We were still finding one or two survivors yesterday. So there. I think that, of course, so much time has passed and hope in terms of finding many survivors are obviously dwindling, but people are still in mourning and are collectively here. The country is still coming to terms with what has happened. So I feel like almost it's too soon for local media to come too hard and fast and be like, the government should have done this, the government should have done that. I can totally empathize with that for a a disaster this seismic. I wonder when you think of and you observe the coverage, has the coverage subtly shifted away from the actual disaster itself to perhaps how the broader public has responded to the disaster or perhaps to how other worlds have responded to this disaster and supported Turkey or even the earthquake in Syria? Has the coverage of this earthquake been a bit more multidimensional as it gets further away from the actual incident Oh, definitely so. So I think this is the challenge of having 24-hour-a-day rolling news, which is that you have to find other angles besides, oh, this is a search and recovery. Oh, this is another rescue. Mm. So I think what local media, and I'm I'm talking about Turkish media, Turkish-speaking, Turkish-language media, has been talking about, which I think is very, very interesting, is Actually, you're seeing a lot of stories on the ground of them, of reporters getting access to, okay, we're in a field hospital. Now we're in the military area where military flights are coming in. Uh, now we're in a, you know, a place where all the volunteers are coming into the airports and you, you get to meet. So you're seeing different faces, all the different faces of the search operation, but also the aid efforts that have mobilized among the ordinary people here, whether they're Turks or whether they're foreigners, then you've really seen the community here come together. So you are seeing many different angles in how this story is being told. And of course, the Syria part 
in provinces that were on the border with Syria. So you are seeing reports coming in from reporters, Turkish reporters in Syria as well. But of course, you know, access is severely more limited than the access that would be in Turkey on the ground here. And maybe the numbers may not be as uh, accurate for Syria at this point in time. Yeah. We're heading into some messages. And when we come back, more coverage on the earthquake in Turkey. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, we speak to Natasha Hussein, presenter, senior producer, journalist, and sub-editor at TRT World on the earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria. Now, Natasha, let's shift the conversation to aid. Give us a sense of how the broader public is mobilizing to support the rescue, recovery, and rebuilding efforts. So what's interesting is that, okay, so I've been covering that angle of collection, aid, and mobilization uh, from here in Istanbul. I'm on the other side of the country, obviously. But in the past two weeks, I have been at three different airports, including a military airport here, witnessing volunteers coming in, just seriously volunteers from all walks of life coming in. And it's like they didn't have to be paramedics or doctors or firefighters, anything of the sort. We had I, I met with musicians. I met with actors. I met with young students who just felt I couldn't just sit at home. I watched this unfold on TV. I had to... I had to, you know, get off my couch and I came here to the airport. I had no plan. I just came to the airport and I'm here I am signing up and here's my plane ticket to board this flight. But um, in, in terms of that, like I, I was at a military airport where there were Afad, tra- Afad again, it's the emergency management, tra- emergency management agency. On top of that, what I've also been seeing is in this city and all cities all over the country also is collective aid efforts. So every neighborhood had collection points. So for example, I was in a neighborhood in on the Asian side of Istanbul, where there were 105 collection points set up across the neighborhood, where people could drop off aid and this aid would be brought to collection centers where people would compile that aid to be sent to a specific area. What was also interesting about this was that after the quake struck, the disaster management authority here decided, oh, I'm going to pair up different neighborhoods in different municipalities in different cities with one municipality in the quake hit area. So they coordinated it in such a way that aid in this neighborhood in Istanbul will go to this specific area. Like so a sister be, township, a sister. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. A sister city, if you if you could yeah. call it that, that. Mm. OK, so at least there was a coordinated effort to get the aid going there. And even when I would come home from work or whatever, I would see sometimes comforters at the side of the road, warm wool clothing, and it would be in piles. And above it would be a sign that said Deprem, which means earthquake in Turkish. So what I've really seen here reflected on the ground and on the news as well is a real collective effort to get relief and aid and also volunteers to the other side because this was such a big disaster over such a large swath of area obviously needed more boots on the ground to help people there. And I'm sure that as you probably are aware there's so much international aid and help also coming in with rescue teams from all around the world nonetheless also from Malaysia. How is it uh, viewed in Turkey you know this aid? Is it I'm sure it's warmly received but is there a feeling that mm, it's a bit too a little too late or it's just not enough or we need more what's the perception or view about international aid at the moment uh the perception of the of foreign aid and relief workers rescue workers coming in has been very very 
positive, obviously. Like I said earlier, the countries are in mourning. People here feel they need all the help they can get, especially in terms of aid and rescuers on the ground. So we are seeing over a very, very large international presence here after the earthquake. There are more than 90 internet, uh, uh, teams from over 90 countries around the world here that are helping in the aid effort one way or another. And I believe there's over 300 Malaysians actually helping in this effort, whether they're part of the SMART team or they're part of the relief effort or doctors helping out in the quake zone. It is something that is viewed quite favorably here. And of course, I don't think there's been any criticism to how fast the aid has come in because it actually has been pretty quick in terms of international assistance coming in. The UN also put aside money for this. And so there has been quite a quick mobilization effort, considering the fact that it was hard to get people into the quake area in the the immediate aftermath of the earthquakes. And I really think we should have a conversation about how Malaysians can help. You've been there, you've seen the situation, and you also know the environment in Malaysia. What, in your view, is the best way for Malaysians to contribute and help in this time? So I have actually been hearing reports that there are almost too many of certain items that have been brought to the aid uh, to the quake affected area. And this is quite interesting because I know that a lot of people will be like, well, I'm doing my bit. I'm donating my clothes uh, and whatnot. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that there's certain things that you would need in this specific situation. You can't just donate, oh, my old my old winter clothes. I think that's fine. But it's like, no, you have to think about the fact that these people are going to have to rebuild their entire lives. They have nothing. Many of these people, you know, we're talking about tens of millions of people displaced at this point in time. They've lost their homes. They're living in tents. They may have to live in that tent for a year as they try to rebuild the city that they're in. And uh, one of the things that I think that the Turkish government has actually done is pinpointed, these are the things that we actually need. All right, we have too many comforters now. And uh, one of the problems that I've, I've also heard from reporters on the ground is that there are items coming in, but because of the destruction, there's nowhere to keep these items. So I actually think I've been hearing reports of, you know, piles of comforters outside. And obviously you in, in this sort of uh, disaster, you have to understand it's very, very cold winter conditions on the other side of Turkey right now. It was a cold snap and has been for the past two weeks. So these people are outside. They're the priority in terms of shelter, not aid items, obviously. So you really need to actually check with the uh, authorities at this point in time on what they need. I know there are lists out on government websites of items that they need, but I do think the best way to donate is not through donating your old things or your items that you think they may need, but actually donate your funds directly to the disaster management authority here. That's AFAD. They have an international section on their website. And then there's also ABAB, which is an NGO, which also has its volunteers on the ground, but uh, some of that money is also directly routed directly to the disaster management authority here. So if you donate your money to these two bodies or other Turkish bodies like it, or even if you find the UN or UN food program, things like that, it will be routed through the um, management authorities here who are directly taking care on figuring out where this money should go to. So essentially it's Afad, ABAP, UN-based agencies, and even the respective embassies, the Turkish embassies. Of course. And yeah. Exactly. And not to mention the Turkish Red Crescent and the Red Cross and other 
big organizations like that here. How about Malaysia's contribution so far to the earthquake relief efforts? Uh, Our prime minister was also down in Turkey recently. TRT World actually had an an interview with Dr. Sri Anwar Ibrahim when he came here for his one-day visit. And what I thought was actually interesting, which was what he highlighted in the interview, was that Malaysians collectively actually donated $10 million in aid and towards the aid and recovery efforts here. So that's quite a large amount of money for, uh, you know, any country around the world to donate. And he also did say that in terms of the Malaysian teams that have been working here, that, you know, they, they saved a few lives and they've also been working tirelessly around the clock, regardless of the fact that they're actually not used to working in harsh winter conditions. So that was quite interesting too. And the thing is, I feel like Turks here have the perception that Malaysia is a brother country, if you could call it that. So Turkish people here generally have a very good impression of Malaysia. I'm not trying to sound like really tooting this, but there's always been this very, very good perception of Malaysia. Very warm and right? Exactly, exactly. A very very friendly relation. Yeah. Yeah, but with the current prime minister that we have, I mean, it's well known here that Erdogan and uh, Anwar Ibrahim are actually personal friends and have been for decades. So you are kind of seeing this evidence in how their relationship has been prog- has progressed uh, or been publicized in the public eye since Anwar Ibrahim took office. Like, for example, there was that infamous phone call in the yeah. press conference, yeah. uh, which also went viral here, by the way. And also but the fact that, you know, in the aftermath of the quake, Anwar Ibrahim was actually one of the first few world leaders to actually go to the quake hit area and actually survey the damage for himself. At that point, not that many world leaders had done so. And, you know, the protocols to undergo something like that, to undertake a trip like that, it has to be approved by the presidency here. And so I think the way it went down was also very quick, because obviously in the aftermath of a quake, the 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 focus is obviously the search and re- recovery efforts. World leaders would just be impacting. So he did come, you know, a week plus after at a time when things had sort of settled down a bit so that there could be a visit of that caliber to the region. But he was, just to emphasize, one of the first few world leaders to actually visit the quake zone. That was Natasha Hussein from TRT World. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.